Hey, it's Dallas, and I have a question for you. But before I ask it, let's set it up with a story by taking us to the state of Florida. So Florida is the home to a lot of families of waterbirds. Egrets, herons, ducks, geese, gulls, flamingos. You get the idea. In fact, Florida says they have 525 different kinds of birds. And most of them, they live along the coasts, the lakes, and the beaches all over Florida. And not only are these birds important for tourist activities, they're incredibly important to maintaining the overall ecological diversity of the area. So now, let's pretend like there's an oil spill in the panhandle of Florida. Suddenly, these extremely important birds are drowning in waters that are just polluted with oil. Their very survival's at stake, and we've got to do something about it. So now for the question. Assuming our mission is to rescue as many birds as possible and we'll treat every type of bird equally, how much are you willing to donate to save 50 birds? Take a second and consider it. Okay, got it. What if instead of 50 birds, you could save 500 birds? What would you donate to save those 500 birds? What about 5,000 birds? Now, I don't know about you personally and how charitable you're feeling today, but I'm willing to bet that when the amount of birds that needed saving increased from 50 to 500, and then again from 500 to 5,000, the amount that you were willing to donate to help these birds didn't increase proportionally 10 times or even 100 times respectively. So what's going on here? Let's take a quick break and then we'll dive in. This is Dallas McLaughlin, and you're listening to Unconsidered, the podcast where we get inside the mind of the modern entrepreneur, business owner, and marketer. If you don't know which door to open, always account for variable change. There is a zero percent chance. You dropped 150 grand on a fucking education, could have got for a dollar fifty in late charges. Tell me something I don't already know. Come on, we just made the deal of our lifetime. We should celebrate. We're in a completely fraudulent system. Yeah, it's a gazi, it's a wazi, it's a woozy, it's a fairy dust. It doesn't exist. The question I asked you was originally published with slightly different numbers in the Journal of Risk and Uncertainty, an article titled An Analysis of Dollar Responses to Public Issues. In their research, they found that on average, people were willing to donate $80 to save 2,000 birds. That comes out to about four cents per bird. Then when the researchers asked a second group of people how much they were willing to donate to save 20,000 birds, the research found that the group was willing to donate only $78. Yeah, the average donation per person actually went down by $2. So the more birds that needed saving, the lower the average donation amount. Finally, when a third group was asked to save 200,000 birds, the average donation amount finally increased, but only by $8, up to $88 on average. Eight more dollars is all people were willing to donate to save 198,000 more birds. So to recap, people were willing to donate on average $80 to save 2,000 birds, $78 to save 20,000 birds, and $88 to save 200,000 birds. Put simply, as the number of birds increased, potential donors valued each bird less and less individually, from four cents per bird to a third of a penny per bird, that's 0.3 of a single penny, down to four one-hundredths of a single penny per bird when the number reached 200,000 birds that needed help. 
So what's going on here? What's happening is what can be referred to as scope insensitivity, or what is sometimes referred to as scope neglect. Put simply, scope insensitivity implies that as numbers increase in size, often as soon as numbers get into the 100s, our brains can no longer distinguish between big, bigger, and biggest. Our emotions, or our feelings towards the numbers, start to become indistinguishable. For example, if you were to tell me that there are 17 million children in North America dealing with hunger, or if you rephrase that with different numbers to say that there are so many children in North America dealing with hunger that you could fill 250 Houston Astrodomes, I would still just feel like that's a lot of hungry kids. Even though the number 250 is vastly smaller than 17 million, the feelings I have are identical. I can't tell the difference between them. I can't visualize one any better than the other. But if you told me that, according to worldhelp.org, for $40, I could feed one hungry child for a whole year, I can visualize that. It's a much smaller number. It makes sense in my brain. I can see two $20 bills. I can see how my $40 will make a direct impact on feeding that child for a whole year. And when I can make that connection in my brain, I'm in. Okay, now that we understand what's happening, what causes this disconnect in our brains, let's talk about why this happens to all of us. And to help us understand why scope and sensitivity occurs, we have to understand a little bit more about how our intuition works or our gut feeling. At a high level, our intuition is fundamentally bad at dealing with numbers. Intuition is this leftover evolutionary trait stemming from our need to subconsciously spot patterns in the wild for the sake of survival like bushes rustling because there's an animal inside there and we need to stab it and eat it for dinner. Think of your intuition as your fight or flight instinct. Our intuition takes over when our need to make a decision is accelerated, when there's no time to think. Intuitional decision-making is faster than logical or analytical decision-making, but intuition isn't good at quickly making sense out of large amounts of data or big numbers. And because of that, our intuition can't always be trusted. For example, if I said that you can choose between $1 million right now or one penny per day doubled each day for just 30 days, you'd probably choose the $1 million and you'd be very wrong. About $4.5 million wrong. Today, each of us are asked to make more decisions than at any other point in time. Some research suggests that the average person now makes as many as 35,000 decisions per day. And if you do that math, that's one decision every two seconds. And to adapt to this increased strain on our ability to make a decision, we've all begun leveraging more and more mental shortcuts to solve our problems. When asked a question, rather than picturing all of the specific details of the question, for example, how many birds 200,000 really is, what a penny per day doubled means, how big the Astrodome is, we think of simplified versions of the type of question we're being asked. Naturally, this oversimplification reduces our decisions to a more manageable size. That's the point. Simplifying the amount of information we need to process and alleviating the amount of stress and strain put on our little tiny decision-making brains. But the danger in oversimplifying our decision-making process with these mental shortcuts is that when large groups of people are faced with the same problem, they begin to use these shortcuts in unison, creating a sort of hive mind. And these shortcuts begin to act as a mechanism that causes groups of people to imagine or visualize roughly the same thing. And then when large groups of people take these shortcuts and begin to visualize the same thing, these large groups begin to empathize to roughly the same degree and try to solve the same problem in generally the same way, which leads to generally the same outcome 
despite the significant differences in the variety of problems that we need to be solving. Now, if you're a nonprofit or anybody in the fundraising space, this is especially problematic. There's an astronomical amount of suffering happening in our world right now. Not to be too dramatic and probably a little bit inaccurate, the amount of suffering, the amount of causes, the amount of help that is needed in this very moment dwarfs any that we're used to dealing with or thinking about. This has led to what's been dubbed the collapse of compassion, or also compassion fade. Compassion fade happens when, sadly and maybe ironically, as the amount of people or things in need of help reaches such a high degree, the amount of compassion people are able to feel for each individual cause or need actually decreases. In other words, compassion fade is another form of scope and sensitivity happening right before our eyes. Things get so big, so overwhelming, we give up on trying to understand it and take a shortcut. But we'll save compassion fade for another episode. But what if you aren't a nonprofit trying to save birds or trying to feed starving children? All great causes, but some of us are small business owners just looking to grow our service-based businesses, you know, like salons, plumbers, software companies. So what if instead you're trying to receive approval on a scope of work to develop a new website, sell a new product, develop a new mobile app, or maybe you're a large product manufacturer and you're trying to close a national distribution deal, and right when that pricing slide comes up in the pitch deck, the money slide, you get pushback from the decision maker. If you're listening to this podcast, you've likely seen it hundreds of times by now. You've spent weeks, God forbid months, having great conversations with the prospect, developing the perfect scope of work, well-defined deliverables to be delivered in a reasonable time frame. It's a slam dunk. Everyone's super excited to get started, and then right when it's time for them to sign on the dotted line, crickets. Unfortunately, I've seen this happen dozens and dozens of times as well. I often hear coworkers lament that the prospect must be stupid, or ask, you know, what's wrong with them? Or they do this general hand-wavy thing and proclaim, they just don't get it. Don't they see we're doing exactly what they asked? Well... Mr. Handwavy guy, your prospects and customers aren't stupid. They aren't dumb. There's actually nothing wrong with them. But you are right about one thing. They don't get it. Whatever that thing was that you shoved in front of them right at the end, you know, the culmination of all of those discovery meetings and scoping sessions, they don't get it. And that's not their fault. So sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but the onus of making the buyer quote unquote get it falls 100% on you and you failed. It's not the prospect's fault, it's your fault. The next time this happens, because it will, consider what we've learned here and where you screwed up. What we've learned is that our brains, including the brains of those prospects that didn't sign with you, are fundamentally bad at dealing with large numbers. And as a small reminder, large can be anything over 100 and hopefully whatever it is you're scoping is over that number, when your prospect flips to that pricing slide, and trust me, they flip straight to it, like us, their brains can't separate that big all-in number into its individual components and all of the things you've discussed up until that point, and they can't properly assign a value to the number presented. You're now asking them to quickly take all of the individual elements of your proposal, parts, labor, deadlines, services, meetings, and quickly sum all of those into whatever the single large number is, and then evaluate if that number is reasonable for all of the things you've discussed up to that point in time. So from the prospect's point of view, intuition kicks in. They start deploying mental shortcuts. They start shortcutting all of your conversations, all of your hard work, rounding off the corners, forgetting less memorable but equally important elements of your proposal. 
they're doing this subconsciously because they're trying to roughly assign a value to that large number staring them in the face, which, as we've learned, they begin to undervalue as the total number increases, like oil-covered birds and starving children. So consider this. The next time you're putting in all of that work, and if you're any good at what you do, you'll always get another chance to do the work. Show the math. That big number that we like to show our prospects, break it into the individual components. Show the decision maker exactly how you're assigning value to your work. Show them exactly how you came to that large number. Show them exactly how you valued each thing you've discussed to that point in time. Let them see it. Let them see the value of each piece of your work. And don't be scared. Remember these two things. You're the domain expert. You're the person uniquely qualified to assign the value of the work you're proposing. Of all of the people involved in the negotiation, you're the only person who does what you do. And number two, you're doing the math to reach that big all-in number anyway. The only way you came to that big number was because you started with the individual elements of the conversation, you priced them independently, and then added them all together. So do it. Show them. Show them the math. The only reason you wouldn't show the math is because you're afraid of what they might say. You're afraid of what questions they might ask about how you priced individual things. You're afraid they might try to negotiate down or ask you how something might cost what it does. You're afraid they might say you're overvaluing your work, or they might say someone else is cheaper and that someone will work for less. And if you're afraid of that, if that's the thing that scares you, if that's the conversation you're scared to have, it scares you because you think they might be right. And if they are right, and you are overvaluing yourself, overvaluing your skill, ultimately overpricing what you're selling and what they're buying, then you deserve the pushback. You deserve to get negotiated down. You deserve to lose on merit or win by being the cheapest in the market. You deserve the honor of wearing the crown of the champion who won the race to the bottom. Congratulations. There's an infinite number of mediocre freelancers or businesses willing to do what you do for cheaper. If the buyer can't tell the difference between you and them, they will choose the cheapest and the fastest. And then for the rest of us, the ones who choose to run great businesses, the ones who choose to offer high quality products and services, which are offered at a premium price to the businesses that are willing to pay that price to achieve the results that come along with it, show the math and help the prospect understand that big number. And in that process, Make sure the prospect understands why you are worth what you are worth and why those numbers in that proposal are the proper value. Tell them why that number is precisely the value that makes it worth your time and why that time is the time it takes to drive the results the prospect is asking of their partner and why even a dollar less compromises the very endeavor they have set out on. If they want cheap, they can go get cheap. If they want results, well, this is what results cost. Sure, the client will pay more, but they'll get more than they paid for. Because when you run a fair business and you're honest in your pricing and you help people understand that and you do great work, you get to keep doing great work for great clients for a long time. Great work begets great clients. And I'm intentionally using the word great, not good. Great work and great clients is what you're after. Not good, great. This is Dallas McLaughlin, and that was another episode of Unconsidered. If you made it this far, thank you so much. That means a lot to me. If you're interested, there's links to all of the research and a full episode transcript at my website, dallasmclaughlin.com. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your podcast platform of choice and consider sharing it with a friend of yours. Until next time, keep working hard and have fun.